I'm Gary Bontrager, your host at Mindset Growth Podcast. I have Heather, my co-host with me today. Heather, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I am wonderful. It's such a nice day. and uh, It looks nice out there from what I can see. I think living in Iowa this winter outside of uh, about a month ago is a great place to be. It's been, yeah, besides that week long of uh, Mother Nature's fury, it's been an all right winter. She's been apologizing ever since. We've got an interesting guest today, uh, and I am so excited for this next guest for several reasons. Uh, One, I've just seen time and time again how he overcame obstacles and goes on to compete at very high levels and I think if somebody says no, or there's an insinuation of something he can't do, the motivation just keeps rising. And uh, so I am very excited for this. Uh, Certainly with Mindset Growth Podcast, we like to interview people that overcame obstacles Mm -hmm. to have success in life and reach their full potential. So with that being said, we want to invite Matt Stutzman known as the armless archer and probably soon the armless drag car racer amongst (laughs) throwing darts and many other things that he does. So with that, Matt, welcome to Mindset Growth Podcast. Hey, hey, thank you so much for having me. We're happy to have you with us today. We're excited to get into this conversation with you. I'm ready. Okay. I got a lot on my mind. All right. Well, we're going to start in the beginning. Because I think it's such an important part of how this all started uh, in in so many layers to it. Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you grew up. And I'm fine if you start like way at the beginning and kind of get through and uncover that or unwrap that piece of it. All right. So my life started, uh, of course, when I was born, right? Uh, When I was born, I was kind of a surprise for the doctors, they weren't expecting a child without any arms. And so when I was born, they asked the doctors, like, what are we going to do with this child? Like, you know, he has no arms. This is new to us. And it's interesting because I think the mindset now is a lot different than it was back in 1982. But back then, the doctor said, it's going to cost millions of dollars to raise this child. You're going to have to do everything for him. He's never going to be able to do anything on his own. And because of that, they they didn't know what to do. So at three months old, they put me up for adoption. And I spent from three months to 13 months in an orphanage. And the uh, my parents, as I now, you know, as I know them, Leon and Gene Stutzman um, walked into the room and apparently I jumped up out of the bed and ran to them and they decided to take me home. Uh, little did I know that that was the best thing that could ever happen to me and took me on this roller coaster ride of life and the way they taught me how to look at things. Um, wow. And here we are basically today. That's in short how I got here. (laughs) So I've heard your father talk about this a little bit as well. And uh, I think what you're referring to, they didn't make it easy for you. They pretty much decided you were going to learn how to survive on your own. And uh, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. I know at one time they had fitted you for prosthetics, uh, you didn't like them and maybe tell that story. Uh, so I have what, eight brothers and sisters. Um, we grew up on a farm. Dad was a principal of the the school kind of locally to us ish. Uh, so we didn't have a lot of money and we, we all pitched in to make the family work. So one of the things that I thought was amazing was that at a very early age, they, they were offered by somebody to give me or give them 400 bucks maybe a month or 500 bucks a month to, but they had to spend on me and they had to use it to modify things in my world, in my life. And they said no. And their reasoning behind it was that they were gonna teach me how to adapt to the world versus the world adapting to me. 
Um, they did give me prosthetics when I was younger. I literally, I, <laughs> I wore them so little. They just weren't for me. In fact, I remember the last time I wore them, I wore them to school to show and tell because I wanted to be the only kid that could take off his arm. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought that was so cool. But the, re- but the reality was is that I wanted, this is who I am. Right. Right. And, and with their thinking and how I was thinking, like the prosthetic arms were just not the route that I wanted to go. And I began to live a, what I call a hands-free life, which is interesting because it still didn't get me out of nothing. Because if dad said I had to go out to the pig pen and feed the the pigs or the cows, and I'd be like, dad, I got no arms. And he'd be (laughs) like, well, (laughs) in our house, if you don't work, you don't eat. Right. So I, you know, I'm hung, I get hungry. So there I was figuring out how to do chores. And I appreciate so much that they did that to me. I appreciate the fact that they kind of pushed me to try things and learn how to work hard. And because I was thinking about this, if they were to have just done everything for me, I would have got, my mindset would have been different. I would have probably Mm -hmm. expected everybody to give me things. I wouldn't have thought outside of the box when there was a problem to figure out how to, you know, fix it or move on with my life, you know, so props to them. Yeah. No, I know there was a lot of tough love. I can't even imagine uh, how difficult that was. I mean, you have kids now. Uh, How hard as a parent, you don't want to see your children suffer right? and uh, just force them to go do these things. Uh, (laughs) Uh, it still had to be difficult. I don't know if he's ever told you about that now that you're adults, but. Uh, well, it, yeah. And, and yeah. the mental part of it too, it would have been so easy for you had you not had that support system to fall into the poor me. The world mm-hmm. has been thrown at me and there's nothing I can do about it. So let me ask yeah. you this question. What, uh, because as long as I could remember you, even as a little kid, when I first seen you, you're somewhat of a comedian and you grew up with people <laughs> watching you because who's seen a kid without arms, you know? So mm-hmm. as was there a point in your life, has that helped you with some of the things you're doing today? Or was that somewhat of an adjustment too, because you felt like you were just continually being watched and sometimes maybe didn't want to be. <laughs> No, you know, um, I still love comedy. I still enter, you know, introduce myself, uh, you know, in funny ways. I still crack armless jokes all the time. <laughs> um, in fact, I have a funny story to tell you uh, about that I think is hilarious. But I think for me, I didn't realize that at the beginning, and I know that we'll talk about this later um, today, but there was a benefit to having everybody staring at me my entire life. I think once I got into the sports and the competition side of things, I was able to refer back to all the years that people were watching me and very quickly, you know, learn how to put it aside, especially when I was competing where everybody else I was competing against have never been in that situation. Right. It's not like all of a sudden you're in front of 10,000 people People have been looking at me my whole life. So for me, it's nothing new. Right. You know, for my for my opponent, this is the first time. So now he's like, oh, my goodness. And he doesn't know how to handle it. And I think that's why, you know, I've been successful. For the most part, in big events and situations like that, because my whole life in a weird kind of crazy way has been training for that moment. Right. Before we go on and get into some of the just standard questions we ask everybody, I want to hear one of your jokes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell you a joke, and then then I'm going to tell you a a story. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So I, I, uh, at one of my last events I was I was competing at was at the World Championships um, in the Czech Republic. And I had a bad round where I really wasn't that happy about it. But I had to reset my brain. So I looked to the guy to my right and I said, hey, do you know what happens when an armless man falls? 
And I and he goes, what? And I said, his face hurts. And then I just started laughing. And, and he is like, what in the world is this? Like, he didn't get... <laughs> he's like, what do you mean? Like, but then I had to, and I laughed even harder because that explained it to him because I was hands. So I just, bam, when I fall, I'm <laughs> You're going to hit your face. I was laughing so hard. I was, anyway, then I, my very next round was awesome, you know, and that was my mm-hmm. mental reset for the round. But anyway, that was a joke. But the story, this is a funny, legit, funny story, in my opinion. So I'm driving to the airport not that long ago, and I had to stop in Des Moines uh, to pick up some parts. And then I, anyway, I didn't know how to get from the parts store there to the airport. So I had my phone on my shoulder, and I had put in, you know, the location. I'm driving to the airport, and I ended up getting pulled over by a cop. And as the cop comes up, the, the cop comes up. So I drive with my feet. My right foot, if you can imagine, is on the steering wheel. And my left foot runs the gas and the brake. And I'm legally allowed to drive whatever. So he walks up. And as soon as he sees I have my foot on the steering wheel, he just kind of like freezes. And he's like, oh, like totally caught him off guard. <laughs> so then he says to me, do you know why? After he kind of recouped a little bit or re- regrouped, he said, do you know why I pulled you over? And I, and I wasn't speeding. I had no idea. So I was like, I don't know. And he goes, well, I noticed that you were on your phone and driving at the same time. And I need to inform you that in Iowa, <laughs> it's a hands-free state. <laughs> and I, I just started laughing. I'm like, everything in my life is hands-free. <laughs> and he looked, and then he noticed, and he's like, just get out of here. And then he just like, well, like <laughs> I, I was like, <laughs> Uh, oh, technically, gosh. I was—I mean, hands-free, right? So, <laughs> uh, anyway. Oh gosh, that's oh, funny. Gosh. I'm sure you have a lot I, of those. I, I kind of wish I would have went to court. I would have paid the—I would have paid the ticket and everything, but I just wanted to see what the judge was going to say. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, when you brought up hands-free earlier, I was thinking, well. They advertise so many things now as hands-free, but are they really? Like, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. I got I got in my truck this morning, and I've never seen this before, but when I started it, on the bottom part of the screen, uh, a message came up that said, the hands-free devices are available. And I, wanted, and I was thinking, that would be a cool video. To, <laughs> and now my truck is uh, You've got a TikTok there. Oh, gosh. <laughs> All right, so we'll get into some of our normal questions here. Do you have a morning routine? I do. I do. So when I wake up, I always start the morning off. Um, of course, I wake up. Um, Alex getting ready to prepare him for school. I have a shake. Um, you know, it's a protein shake. Mm-hmm. Just kind of wakes me up for the day. And kind of like most people have coffee, I, you know, do shakes and things like that. Um, usually after that, it's um, take, you know, take the kids to school. Um when I'm in training full time with archery, you know, then that's when I'll spend, you know, two or three hours in the morning shooting my bow. Um, after that is over, I used to go to the gym a lot. I don't as much anymore. <laughs> uh, just because I instead spend that time on mental prep. Because I have noticed in the past five, six years that the mental prep was more valuable to me than the physical training part, as far as my performances. Um, after that, then, you know, it's usually by noon or somewhere in there, I'm pretty free. And at that point I'm working on race cars and singing in the shop. There you go. Yeah. What does your mm-hmm. mental prep look like? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah. So I do a lot of visualizations. Okay. Um, I do a lot of Pretending I'm there, pretending what it sounds like, what it feels like. So I've actually already been to Paris and I've actually stood where the shooting line's going to be and seen where the target will be. And I've been visualizing that for five months now. Okay. So when I go over there, it will be like I've been here a million times in my head. I know what a perfect shot feels like when it leaves the bow and it hits the target. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I visualize, you know, 
the wind and the grass and the smells and just kind of do my best every day to put myself there. So that's kind of what I do, especially on big events. Let me ask you this, uh, because I think a lot of people struggle with just routine life things. And certainly you're on a stage with what you do. But I think there's a lot of just business owners and people that get stuck and going, I don't, they don't know how to advance their skill, their craft, uh, achieve more. Uh, sometimes they maybe don't want to, but I think we're all created to do a lot more than we believe. I think you just were putting on a platform that really promoted that at an early age and that, that, you know, just kind of became a drug to you to drive you mm -hmm. forward. But I think everybody has that hidden within them. My question is simply this mental prep is massive because we can either take ourselves up or we can take ourselves down. Most people will never talk to another person the way they talk to themselves. And they probably need their, you know, need their butt kicked for talking to themselves that way because they're dragging it down. How do you, how do you see, not only does it help you in competition, how do you feel that would affect other people if they really took some time to mentally prepare for what it is they they do in life. I'm going to uh, start with a little story about the day I realized the importance of mental. Um, I'm at an event and I'm shooting. In fact, I'm um, 2012 games. Uh, I shooting against an opponent of mine who is actually from the United States. And this is in the Olympics, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, 2012 games. And I have to beat him to make it to the semifinals. And I'm not shooting the greatest. I'm struggling a little bit. And I, and I made the error of allowing him to have the final shot. If he hits a 10, he wins. I'm out. A nine, he ties me. We go to one arrow shoot off. If he shoots an eight, I win and I advance. And I remember the announcer saying that over the loudspeaker, kind of like to educate people as this guy's getting ready to shoot. And immediately when that happened, I knew I was going to win because I watched him shoot an eight and he hadn't shot an eight all week. And what happened was, this is where I really came to the realization of this. What happened was, is that instead of thinking, I'm going to shoot a 10 to move on for the win. He thought, if I shoot an eight, I lose. Don't shoot an eight. Mm. And he shot an eight. Yep. And it, it stuck with me for a very, very long time uh, because literally that's all it took for him to be out was him thinking negatively, don't shoot an eight, don't shoot an eight, because if I shoot an eight, I'm going to lose, where you should have been thinking if I hit a 10, I'm going to win. I'm going to send the guy packing. See you later, man. Or even in business or anything, really, it's wake up in the morning thinking, today, I'm going to struggle figuring this out, and I really don't look forward to it. You're not going to figure it out. Right. If you wake up in the day, no matter what, let's say it's your 12th hour, 12th day of of this issue, if you wake up in the morning and just tell yourself, today's the day we're going to figure it out. It might not be that day, but it will be a couple of days. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's yes. literally, that's all you have to tell yourself. And it changes everything. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's a we, powerful thing. It's, it's, a, it's huge. It's, it's incredibly powerful. Um, the saying I use with people all the time, and we can go down to a lot of rabbit holes and we won't go into that today, but where your where your focus goes, your energy flows. Thank you, Heather. And it's a hundred percent. It's, it's, you know, we all know when we've made those mistakes ourselves, and you know, it's all, it's mental. It's where it's at. There certainly has to be that physical ability, but most people lose mentally. They don't lose physically. And it's just at the game of life. I'm a big when when I was younger, when I was younger, uh probably seven ish, somewhere in there. I felt and I knew 
and wanted to do something with my life besides just being an armless guy. Hmm. I felt it. I knew it. I believed it. I remember writing a um, a letter. I actually signed my autograph on this piece of paper, and I gave it to a friend of mine when I was eight years old, saying, when I become famous, <laughs> whatever that means, when I become famous, you should, you know, bring this back to me. Like, I just knew I felt it. I believed it from day one. And it took me a long, long time. I didn't really find out what I was supposed to do with my life until way later on, like 20, what, seven years old by the time I finally figured it out. Mm -hmm. But I still believed it every single day. <clears throat> Did you get the letter back? No, they won't give it back. <laughs> 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 all right we're uh we're gonna go into a couple of rapid fire questions we ask everybody it's just to kind of ask you crazy questions to get to know you better and unpack you know a little bit more about our guest what is a nickname or what nickname did you have growing up mm, i don't know i don't know if i really had one uh, it might have been stubs Stubs. I've heard a couple people call me that. <laughs> Life's cruel. Yes, it is. Kids are cruel. <laughs> they could have picked oh, a better shit. one for me, but they never did. So. Yeah, I always wanted a nickname and never got one. So it's like, shucks. Uh, well, the one I had was mouth, and apparently I was uh, mouthy yeah. and loud. Yeah, yeah. So. Some yes, things never change. <laughs> there you go. All right. What character from a kid's book or movie reminds you of yourself? Mm, I know these are supposed to be rapid fire, but that's okay. Pe can can I can I pick uh, um, Iron Man or Superman? Sure, sure you can. Anybody there you want. Is. Yeah. All right. I, Perfect. Superman, Superman, it is. All right, Superman. That's that would have a been good a, one. That would have been a much better nickname. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Here's a, do you prefer summer or winter Olympics? Oh. <sighs> summer. I had to summer. think about that one because I, I like winter. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> my hands never get cold, so I don't ever complain about it. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, yeah, you got boots on your feet, but no, you don't. <laughs> that doesn't work that way either. Uh, yeah, that's that's awesome. Go ahead, Heather. So we've kind of started touching on this, but now we'll kind of get into it a little bit more. But so in your life, you've accomplished things that most people wouldn't even try, like drag racing, uh, competing in the Olympics. What drives you to push yourself the way that you do? This is a, a pretty easy question to answer, but uh, my boys, my family, and those are the only people in my life that I wake up every day thinking about about how I can make myself better, how I can make my family better. I believe in showing by example versus talk. You can talk as much as you want to about this is the man you should be, this is what you should do with your life, this is how you should positively positively think to get things done. You should, you know, no excuses type stuff. And the only way I believe that that works is if you back it up by example. Mm -hmm. When I wake up every morning, I, I tell myself that my kids and my family are watching me all the time. So I always try to make wise decisions when it comes to that or push myself to, you know, where I believe I am know I'm capable of getting. And it's because of them. Separately, I'm Gage. And I'm Bontrager. Together, we, we are Gage Bontrager Consulting. We work on changing your mindset, developing leaders, building systems and processes, helping you grow personally and professionally to achieve the success that you want personally and professionally. 
however you choose to define success for you. Reach out to us and follow us on social media or look us up on the website and that will put you on a path to achieve what is missing in your life. Thanks for watching this episode of Mindset Growth Podcast. What, uh, I, I like that. And I'm going to go back. So that's what motivates you to do what you do now. You mentioned that it took you to about age 27 and you, you know, you did some other, I don't even know what all jobs you had and what you did in between there. What did that process look like though, for you to go through all those stages to figure out that you're good at archery or even to pick up a bow and, and try archery? Yeah. So I had lots of dreams. Um, I tried bull riding. <laughs> wow. Let, yep. And I can tell you stories of how I got my first concussion riding one of those babies. Um, <laughs> uh, I wanted to be Michael Jordan one day. Like, so basketball was important. And I remember my dad just getting me a basketball hoop and basketball and telling me to start practicing, even though he knew I would never be Michael Jordan. Right. Because it just, I have no arms like that's just reality, but he didn't crush my dream. Um, I had to find out on my own that that was reality. Um, the re how that really kicked off in archery is so basically from as long as I can remember, I tried tons of different things. Uh, I remember I wanted to be a professional race car driver at one point in my life. And then when it took me until 2010 I couldn't find a job. I'd been looking for like a year. Nobody would hire me. Nobody would give me a chance. I would show up for the interview and they would see me with no arms. And like, I literally had people tell me if I had prosthetics, they would hire me, even though my, my resume was fine. And I was thinking like, <laughs> that, that, that is so, you don't know who I am, but either way, right. Like, let me drive truck. Let me do. Yeah. Something. Like I can show you, I can do all this stuff. And they're just like, eh. So I was sitting on the couch in 2010, October. And I remember, um, there's a guy on TV and he was in the woods with his bow he had to hunt and show. And I was like, I'm hungry and I don't have any money. So this is my, like, it just was like, I'm going to get a bow and go in the woods and try to put food on the table. And I remember Googling how to teach an armless man how to shoot a bow. <laughs> and there was nothing. There was nothing. There was nothing. <laughs> uh, I mean, you Google everything nowadays, right? I right. was ahead of the curve. Um, there was nothing. So I, I just bought a bow from um, a shop in Iowa City called Finn and Feather. Right. I bought the bow. I went home and uh, pretended I had arms in my head. So if a guy with arms shot the bow, he held the bow with his right foot or arm. So I held the bow with my right foot. And during that process, so like if you were, to, for me, if I were to see a picture of me shooting a bow, I would see exactly how somebody with arms would be shooting it in my head. Right. And by doing that, I was able to teach myself within a short amount of time what I was going to have to do to do it. And uh, I went out in the woods a week later and I shot a deer. And that's all it took. It, it, it made me believe in myself that I can provide. You know, I can put food on the table for my family. And I felt like that was extremely important for just me and my motivation. Because at that point, everybody was telling me no. They weren't right. even letting me prove it. They were just like, no, no, yeah. you look, you have no arms. No, like, no, no, no. And I was just like, and so when this happened, I was like, okay, there's, there's some positivity here. Um, and then I remember telling myself that I'm going to put the bow up. I shot a deer, um, got food in the freezer, time to go apply for jobs again. I'll just tell them I shot a deer with no arms and they will, they'll be like, whoa. I'm like, see what I can do for your company. Uh, that was my game. <laughs> that was my game plan. <laughs> uh, and my buddy is like, Hey, there's an archery tournament coming up. You should go shoot. And there was like $12,000 on the line. And I went to that event. I got 200 its place. And the reason I'm telling you this story is because on the way home, I, I, 
hit three deer with the car, my only car, <laughs> and totaled it. Um, and then an hour later, a, a bow manufacturer called me and said they wanted to sponsor me. Wow. So I take this bow. A week later, I get this bow, and I show my friend. And this is now January of 2011. And he tells me, the reason why they sponsor you is because you have no arms and you draw attention to their product. It's not because you are good. <laughs> and that really was the truth. I wasn't hey, that guy. I good, got 200 plays. I just, I had just yeah. learned how to shoot, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, like, that is not who I want to be. I want to be known as the best archer in the world. Followed by the statement, oh, by the way, did you know he does it with no arms? So it was like January 12, 2011, and I decided to sit in a chair for eight hours a day and teach myself how to be the best archer in the world. And that's kind of where we're at. There's a little bit to unpack there. The first time that you shot that first bow, though, I mean, because today you use like a harness and you release it with your mouth and all of that. When you did it originally, did you like release it with your left leg or did you create, build some type of harness from the beginning? No, I actually bit it with my teeth. The string. Oh, oh really? <laughs> it is not recommended. It is oh. not recommended. And you didn't but pull your teeth out. <laughs> no, I, I had, you have to open your jaw really fast. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. And then you drop the Otherwise bow. I'd be talking to you like this. Uh-huh. You know, so. Yeah. But within within a week or so I had figured out that that was not comfortable or you know that just wasn't going to work. So Right. My next step was I knew that they had mechanical release aids for your wrist. Yes. And so what I did is I would I I got one and I put it on my shoulder and I just had to keep my shoulder straight, and then I activated the trigger with my jaw. And that okay. was kind of like the second edition of how that worked. And then that that's actually what I used for probably the first five months, and then decided to keep developing into what I have now. Okay. And so at 2011, so in a really short period of time, which I remember you buying that bow because I would play cards with some of the guys that were fitting you, at mm-hmm. Finn and Feather, and uh, they were like, "Hey, there's this guy that come in with no arms," and I'm like, "Well, I knew it was. <laughs> it had to be you." And I was like, "Oh yeah, I, you know." And they're like, "You know him?" I'm like, "Yeah." And I'm like, and "Then they tell me what you're doing." I'm like, "What the world is going on here?" <laughs> you know. And they were super pumped and excited mm-hmm. uh, just for that experience. But um, you, you so you buy your first bow in 2010. Your first appearance at the Olympics was in 12. Is that right, or did you yep. just start competition in 12? No, so that was much, my well. That was my first everything. So, so you actually had to earn your way in to be on to represent the United States. Mm-hmm. What did what did you have to do in such a short time in order to qualify? Yeah, so interesting enough, when I decided that I wanted to be the best archer in the world, I didn't, at that point, it wasn't Olympic-based. Okay. It was, there's a tournament in Vegas every year. It's the highest paying tournament in the in the world. If you, Nowadays, like this year, if you would have won it this year, over $100,000, right? Okay. And that was my goal is that I just wanted to win Vegas one day. Mm-hmm. And at Vegas, my first year at Vegas, 2011, there was this creepy guy who kept following me around with a camera and kept inviting me back to his tent, his little whatever. <laughs> and, I was like, and I was like, what is going on? This is so, and I kept like hiding from him. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't until about three days later, I found out he was actually the head coach for the United States archery team. Oh geez. <laughs> and he was <laughs> he was videoing me. He's pretty humble about it because he just didn't walk up and say, Hey, I coach USA. Like he was just like he just he he wanted me to come back and, and watch video and he wanted to point out what he what I could do to make myself better because he saw the potential. Oh, and yeah. so it really wasn't until probably it was February of 2011 that I actually learned about mm-hmm. USA Archery 
and learn about the you know the, the Olympics and and the, the games and archery and the games and like I because I didn't really follow that much when I was younger and I remember thinking to myself well that would be fun but I didn't really put a lot of I didn't really put a lot of stock into it at the beginning uh, because right. like I said I was focused on Vegas so. With his help, we started to, you know, learning more of the process and the breathing and the mental side of things. And um, in 2000, and so I shot all of 2011 basically with like no tournament stuff, and just me and my in the yard. And I get I get an invitation in 2000, uh, the end of 2000, so 2011, like November somewhere there. I get an invitation to just go to a camp for USA archery and I'm like, all right. right. So I roll in there and I immediately see all these guys who have been to games before. I see guys who have won medals at games before and I see all these guys. And so I'm like on the internet looking them up, right? And I realized that I'm around a whole bunch of talented people. And I was like, okay, this is really like legit stuff here. And I remember at the end of the the session, the week session that we had, they held a tournament just for funsies, and I won it. And I was thinking to myself, that was a fluke. How did I just beat all these other guys? Um, Then we went into the beginning of 2012, and in like April, we started the trials process to see who got to go to the games. It's a a uh, three-stage trial process. So they basically start with anybody in the U.S. can show up. And then after after the first leg is over, the top 16 move on to round two. Then the top eight from round two move on to round three. And then the top in that year, only two people in the entire United States got to go represent the United States. And so they take the top eight and narrow it down to the top two. And I remember I was just going with it. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just having a good time. After stage two was over, there was I had so many points that nobody could catch me. And I went into stage three, and like I dominated the whole entire trials process and was the number one ranked guy going into the games. <laughs> and I, like yeah. I said, I have I have no no idea how in the world that just happened. Uh, looking back now, I can tell you, but during that time frame, right, right, I don't, yeah. I don't know why I was able to just go within a year to trials and win it all and go to my first games that fast. Well, it comes back to your focus and what you were doing mentally, even though you didn't realize it. That epiphany, I think, came to you later, but that was the difference. Uh, I will tell you this too. We often see that people don't change what they're doing until they be, they're put in a situation where they're forced to. And I can imagine one of the lowest points of your life was when you're sitting on that sofa mm-hmm. as a man going, I can't even provide for my family. Yep. And the best thing you could do is kill a deer. So you at yep. least felt like you were contributing and you had your manhood back. And that that mentally triggered something that set you on a different path. And then doors and opportunities opened. Um, It's, it's interesting too, how many times people stop before they're, they really accomplish what they could. I mean, you had a lot of opportunities to say, this is good enough, uh, but you just keep pushing and we'll hear more about that. Well, even the amount of hours that you put in daily to, teach yourself and to perfect your craft that is truly to me that's unheard of what'd you say eight hours a day at least yeah but if you think about it it kind of comes back to what you said earlier about being in that situation where you're at i'm at my lowest Mm -hmm. i'm just wanting to provide i'm I'm not asking for a million dollars i'm not asking for a thousand dollars i just want the feeling of being able to know that i'm taking care of my family and they don't have to struggle just with maybe buying shoes or figuring out how, like when I'm at that point and archery happened for me and I learned that I could shoot a deer and I learned that I could accomplish that Mm -hmm. archery in general became like, this is, this is my 
like I believed immediately, like this is my Michael Jordan moment. Mm-hmm. And eight hours a day was nothing because I knew I had found something that I could do that would provide for my family. And I had tried so many things up to that point that failed. And when you finally figure it, when it finally clicks for you, eight hours a day didn't feel like anything. It felt like two minutes. Like it just went by really fast. Like I now have a purpose, right? Like you go all these years without a purpose and and just trying to figure out how to do it. And now you have it. Bam. Eight hours a day is easy. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's, uh, I, I guess I even draw that parallel to people who go to work for eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. If you really try to improve your craft every day while you're there and not just focused on a paycheck, you're going to advance yourself. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot of, you're going to improve your skills. There's a lot of things you can accomplish there. So there's a lot of parallels to draw out of that. Let's talk about a little bit of your experience because I know you've been back to the Olympics more uh, more than once. Uh, Would this be your fourth? Have you qualified yes. every year? Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So tell us about that first experience and how that went. I mean, what was part of that? Once you get there uh, mentally, uh, clearly at that time, you can look back now and 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 I don't know if you have a personal men- mental coach or, you know, how that is now for you. But at that stage, clearly the coach for the U.S. team was a mental coach for you as well as, and as mm-hmm. well as uh, just mechanics. But how did that experience unfold and how did, how was it? My first one was probably one of the better ones um, from a standpoint of mental. First of all, I remember I had no expectations. I had, I had made it. I was just happy to be there at that point. And I remember him telling me all the time, like, you just, you just worked, you know, for since 2011, the beginning of 2011, essentially, you spent this last year and a half or year or whatever. So yeah, year and a half shooting eight hours a day and teaching yourself. You already put in the time, you already put in the work. There's nothing you can do to change that now. You're not going to learn anything new overnight at this level. So just enjoy it. Enjoy that you're here. Go to the opening ceremony. Soak it all in. You know, go to the Olympic Village and just look around and just enjoy the fact and celebrate and and not put so much effort and energy on focusing on performance right now. And that's what I did. And my scores showed it because I even I even qualified number one at the games uh, oh, wow. when I was there, we shot our qualification round and actually um, the weather was kind of bad, but I still missed the Olympic record by like five or six points. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Excellent. I, I was just, everything about it just flowed. And I remember just one era at a time process. Don't, in fact, I honestly didn't even think here's this crazy. I didn't even think about a gold or silver medal at all until I actually made it to the final match. And then that's when it hit me like, oh my goodness, I'm going to win some. <laughs> <laughs> I'm this taking a medal home. <laughs> uh, what, uh, so that was, how did, how did you end up that year then with it? Did I don't, I know I've seen it, but I don't recall. Yeah. So I ended up getting the silver that year and what, and I, and I can tell you why I ended up getting silver and it came down to the same mindset that got me to the medal match. I was so like, I was just doing my thing and enjoying the experience and I didn't put any pressure on myself. I was just enjoying the moment and doing the process. But when I got to the games, I was so happy that I got there or when I got to the medal match, I was so happy that I got there. I literally didn't care if I won or not because once I got into that situation, even if I lost my last match, I'm still getting a medal. Right. Right. And I, and literally like a year ago, I couldn't, I had to shoot a deer to put food on the table. Right. So like for me, I was like emotional the entire time and trying not to cry what I was shooting because I had made it. And I and and I had all these people say I couldn't ever be anything, and here I am. And that mindset is why I got second, because I should have been, I should have <laughs> right. been kept pushing. Okay, the right. gold's here now. Like right. you know, and I'm and I reach. realized it 
as soon as the medal match was over, I realized why I lost. I was right. like, oh, maybe I should have tried harder mentally or told myself things differently. And I remember telling the guy who beat me, we were on the podium, and I remember telling him that, congratulations. And I remember telling him that he wasn't ever going to beat me again. <laughs> and uh, that was true. Ever since right. that point, he's never beaten me again. Has he, so, do you see a lot of the same faces returning? Yeah, yeah, we're just within the last year, we're starting to see a lot of fresh faces. Okay. But up until that point, a lot of the people that I shot against, um, you know, same, same guys and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. I, uh, and then, and then, uh, you went to three, the other two you've gone to, uh, similar experiences, but you went in with a little different set of focus. I would imagine yeah. how'd you do in the second time back. And, and in between that time, you've pretty much focused on just training and doing other events again. It was your life kind of became archery for the last 10 years up until more mm -hmm. recently. And we'll get to that. But, um, what, I mean, is that just kind of what you did? Eight hours of training again for a number of years? Yeah. Um, so after the 2012 games from 2012 to 2016, I pretty much spent eight hours a day shooting. Okay. In fact, going into the 2016 games, I was more prepared for that one uh, than I have ever been. In fact, from 2006, sorry, from 2013, 12, from 2012 through 2016, Every single event, including international, that I went to, I podiumed at. Okay. I held on to the number one ranked archer in the world for like four straight years. Wow. Wow. I went on this unbelievable mm -hmm. roll of streak. Um, I went into that games as the number one seated guy in the world. Um, I won trials what? again. So. How much pressure comes with that, though, knowing that you're you're the guy to beat? There's a target on your back, essentially. I going into that games, I pretty much had reclaimed all the world records too. Uh, shot yeah. a perfect score wow. in competition, things like that. Like just totally had all the world records. I just was killing it. Like I would just go places, and people would just pack their stuff up. It was crazy, um, and I felt the. When I got there, I didn't feel any, I, I still didn't feel any pressure. Um, I still believed at that point that I'm going to win this, right? I remember two rounds in, I was shooting against Brazil. And I remember um, if I shoot a, if I, if I shoot a 10 right now, I win. And I remember looking at him like, see you later, man. Like I was in such a good place mentally. I knew what it took and I was going to back to back the stuff. And I remember shooting and something happened that's never happened before. The knock that attaches to the string um cracked. Mm. And it 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 the it made the arrow veer off target like it literally it broke. It was just this one in a million thing that happened. And it mm. caused the arrow to break and I, because of it, then I was eliminated. So I remember being pretty disappointed because it was something out of my control. You know, right. like everything about it was perfect. I actually have that arrow hanging in my shop as a reminder of sometimes yeah. you get set back in life, but that doesn't ultimately change where you're going. Because after that loss, the very next year, I won pretty much everything I went to and I won something that is very important to me. I went to a target outdoor target nationals and I had, I shot against um, all the able-bodied Olympians and everybody in the whole United States. Uh, the best archers in the world were there and I won by 20 points um, becoming the first person with a physical disability Second, second person in the world, let's take it back, second person in the United States with a physical disability to win and then be named to an able-bodied USA team. Wow. Excellent. 
the, and that's there was, what you and that's what you then shot in on the third Olympics. No, or you so were just on that team. Went, yeah, so then on the third Olympics, that was Tokyo. Um, when that happened, it was during COVID. I don't know if you guys right. remember it. That one was just <laughs> <laughs> that one was just kind of crazy. That uh, that was just uh, just a lot of stuff that the whole world was dealing with. You know, we shot yeah. in an empty empty stadium and. And uh, ironically enough, this is, I don't know, it is, it is weird to me. But like I said, I always believe there's a purpose. When I got to the games and the first day of score, they brought us our bows. So once you put them on a plane in the U.S., you see them when you get to the field. So you don't see them for like a week and a half. I get my bow out and it's broken. <laughs> so I uh, spend the next couple days putting parts and pieces of wherever I, cause during COVID nobody could ship you nothing. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like I could just call the manufacturer and they can overnight me parts. I'm in Japan. Right. Like right. Yeah. at this point, like everything's on lockdown still and, and there's all these protocols in effect. So, and because of this, we are actually able to create a new product that is actually better because of this. So I, I, I gimmick two crazy things together to make it work and it actually turned out to be a better product than what we already had what I ended up ninth I ended up ninth in Tokyo I just um, this sounds I lost my faith in my equipment because I put it together it was still shooting good but it, it just because of what happened I guess I didn't trust it like I should have right. and I second <clears throat> I doubted it so that goes back to the mindset thing um, and then the very next year, I win world championships. <laughs> right, so, right. No, it's crazy how some of those things can set us off on some adversity with all of that. So do you still shoot in a lot of the competitions, or are you primarily narrowed down to just the Olympics at this point? Yeah, um, so I've been doing it now for, what, 13 years, um, and right. eight hours a day is a lot of hours. And I'm getting, you know, I'm 40, 41 now. Um, and so I'm getting to the point in my career where I still am good enough to make the U S team. Um, in fact, I just went to this, this year, no, last year, um, I went to the Czech Republic for world championships, ended up, uh, would we get bronze there? I got a bronze and then I ended up, um, earning a slot for team USA for this up and coming games. So, but my scores are down a little bit. Um, and I think it's just my body. Um, I'm having some hip issues. I don't know if you guys know how I shoot or not, but if you Google it or put up a picture, you're talking 13 years, eight hours a day of working those legs like that. They just kind of gradually wear out a little bit, you know? So mm -hmm. right now to answer your question, I spend more time, you know, shoot three hours, probably right. two times, maybe three times a week at the most now. Okay. and more mental focus yep. and work on that side of it. If you like this episode, please come back next week for part two as we finish and continue our interview with Matt Stutzman. Such an inspiring individual, you're not gonna miss what he has to say.